Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Marsha Dawood. She's an angel investor and chair of the Angel Capital Association. Marsha, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Kevin. Nice to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, I'm excited to have you back on the show. You've done the show a couple of times. You did my other show. And I always find what we cover really fascinating and interesting. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. So I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania outside of Reading uh, and lived there all through K through 12. I still have friends that I went to uh, um, preschool with when That's I was amazing. four years old. In fact, my dad just cleaned out my childhood home. And the other day I found a book that one of my still very good friends gave me. And the date on it was my fourth birthday. That's How amazing. Cute. So cute. <laughs> That's awesome that you kept in touch with people for that long. Like most people, I think kind of maybe you could argue just like high school or college on, right? And so the fact right. that you have friends from that long ago is is, is very cool. Yeah. So you went to university. What did you take and why? So I went to the University of Pittsburgh. So I spent a lot of my life in Pennsylvania. I was the first half of my life was in um, Eastern Pennsylvania. Then I went to live in Pittsburgh for a long time. Um, went to the University of Pittsburgh for undergrad. And basically I went to, to learn business. I, I had a double major business and psychology. When you were in the business school there back in the day, you had to take a second major. Um, but really I was there to, to get a business degree. Interesting. Was there a defining moment or, or things growing up that got you passionate about business? So I had wanted to be a retail buyer um, okay. because a friend of our family had been a retail buyer at a um, at a small retailer in in uh, the Reading area. Cool. And back then there weren't like these big conglomerate. Uh, you know, there wasn't just like Macy's, you know, right. that's like pretty much the only place that you could go, um, that for like, you know, uh, in any type of like a smaller town. Um, but there were a lot of like smaller department stores and things like that. So I thought being a department store buyer would be really cool. And I actually did end up becoming a buyer for, uh, awesome. uh for Kaufman's department store, which was owned by the May company, which was then bought by Macy's. So that's how I, you know, kind of, um, made that, uh, you know, analogy there, but Basically, it was interesting because I thought that, oh, this is going to be really fun. You know, it's almost like you can do all this, um, you know, buying of these different things and be able to create your floor plans and stuff like that. And there was there was some of that. But when you get into these bigger corporate buying things, you, you, you don't you kind of get told what to buy. You don't really you're just kind of moving the, the money around and all that kind of stuff. Interesting. OK, so walk us through your career up until what you're doing today, maybe some highlights along the way, because you've done a ton of stuff. And then talk about why you actually went back and got your MBA and why you thought that was important. 
Yeah. So I was a retail buyer for about five years and then I realized how much consolidation was happening and I realized my job was going to be eliminated at least at some point. So I thought I got to get into a more stable uh, industry. Sure. So I went and worked in the education industry for Kaplan Education and I was with that company for a long time. Um, I did everything from sales and marketing to operations, compliance. And I, from working at the same company for so long, I kind of got to the point where we'd be in meetings and I'd say to myself, you know, aren't we talking about the same thing that we talked about <laughs> like six months ago? And we thought that we'd make a difference then. And we're trying to think we're going to make a difference now and it's not really happening. So now, now what do we do? So I kind of got to this point where I was like, wow, I, I really don't know anything other than what we've been doing this whole time. And it, it was frustrating to me because I, I didn't feel like I was even able to add that much more value because we'd kind of been doing all the same stuff. So I thought, well, I think I need a change. I'm going to go back to school and get an MBA. So I did. I went to the University of uh, North Carolina at Chapel Hill and I went through a program that was really interesting. It was an, an international program. So there were five universities around the world that got together and we had the same curriculum. Sure. And we, uh, in our local class, meaning the UNC class, we had about 39, 40 people. And then in our um, global class, though, we had 120 people. So we, we wow. went through the whole two-year program together, all 120 of us globally. That's and we awesome. were on... Yeah, we'd work on teams. And then every um, semester, we would go to a different country to wow. the host school. So, you know, we went to China and we went to um, India and all these crazy places in Brazil. It was really nice. It was awesome. It was a great, great experience and got to meet some amazing people and see some of the most beautiful parts of the world. So that was very neat. Um, but it also did give me uh, a great education in business and kind of how to do things differently, especially because, you know, there's so many differences in how we think. And so when we talk today about like diversity and we think, well, you know, why is diversity important? Well, it is so important because here I found like, you know, in my previous roles, I was kind of always doing the same thing. We weren't really having a lot of diversity of thought. And diversity doesn't have to necessarily mean, you know, necessarily race or or gender, It although that definitely helps. But it can be even be like where you went to school or where you grew up or Absolutely. what part of the world you live in. And, and I just learned so much from my experience uh, in grad school and, and getting to know so much more about different cultures and the types of um, business that's done all over the world, it, it made really opened my eyes to how I could help entrepreneurs. And I didn't even know that that's really what I wanted to do so much when I was in grad school, I was still working for Kaplan and I, I was still, you know, in a full-time kind of corporate America role. And then I got invited to go to an angel investing meeting. And I remember saying to the person who invited me, well, what's angel investing? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> and, um, you know, came to find out that it's really a way that you can help these early stage entrepreneurial companies to grow. It doesn't necessarily always have to be with money. Uh, it can be mentorship or with your level of expertise, but it's a really interesting way to kind of learn about what's going on in the world. I remember going to the first couple of meetings and thinking to myself, wow, like I had no idea that this type of whatever, fill in the blank, technology, medical device, pharmaceutical drug, who knows, you know, you just, I had no idea that was even uh, happening or that you could do that. So I just started to really 
get an eye-opening experience between grad school and between um, going to some of these angel investing meetings and hearing these amazing ideas these entrepreneurs had and then the struggles that they have in order to try to get the companies to grow. So, you know, that's kind of what has led me on this path. That's amazing. And I'm glad that you said that because I find so many people, it's this sometimes like somebody gets to where they go in their career and it becomes this mystical thing. But so many people forget that everybody had to start at the beginning and a lot of times had no idea about where the where they end up in an industry. They had no idea about that industry or even that it really existed or what it was even called. Right. And so I think the fact that you're willing to state that and talk about that is actually really inspiring in itself because we all have to start somewhere. Right. Right. Yeah. I had no idea that I would be this involved and then end up chairing the, you know, national association for the industry. It's kind of crazy. Sure. So you've been on the investment side for a number of years now, but I want to dive into the angel capital association and how did you get involved and become the actual chair? So in, um, well, it was about six years ago, I became a board member and okay. I was essentially just invited to be a board member. And I think a lot of it was at the time, um, the association, which we are the professional society of angel investors across the U.S. and globally. Now we do have global um, members. And, you know, we were a spin out of the Kauffman Foundation in, in a way that we could just mobilize, try to start to mobilize capital for entrepreneurial companies. And over the years, um, you know, we've we've grown and and we've seen more and more angel groups form, which is always exciting. And then we've done things within the organization to help um, get more capital to uh, diverse founders. And all of these things were kind of happening. And I was invited to be a board member. And then through that, uh, I started to um, be the leader of our membership committee. I then merged my committee with our marketing committee and we ended up with a, an M and M committee, we call it and uh, co-chaired that for a while. And then was the founder and, and um, still host of what, what I call the growing women's capital movement, which is a call that we have monthly in order to support groups that are looking to invest in female led companies. And we showcase um, female entrepreneurs each month and help with syndicating the deals that are going on there. That's that's very cool. So before we dive maybe a little bit deeper into what exactly the Angel Capital Association can do for companies and entrepreneurs, I want to talk about how does somebody or what does it mean to actually become an angel investor? Because you've brought this up before with me. It's a lot easier to actually become an angel investor than I think a lot of people even think about. So do you want to talk about what it really means to become an angel investor or at least get people thinking like, yeah, maybe I could do that? Sure. So there's a couple of ways and things that you can do. I mean, being an angel is essentially saying that you're going to help entrepreneurial companies to grow. And that could be through investing, which is the main way that people think about it when they think about angels. But it also could be that you become a mentor and now people who are either retired or they have some extra time on their hands and they want to do some type of a give back, they can do that by helping an entrepreneurial company, especially people who have a certain level of expertise. It could be in any, I mean, 
pretty much everybody has their own level of expertise in something. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, maybe off the bat, you might think of things like, you know, being a lawyer or an accountant or something, but you can also think about it like maybe you happen to be very good at supply chain management or uh, retail marketing. And those types of things are very needed in the entrepreneurial community as well. So that's one way entrepreneurs always need help with connections and networking. So that's another way. When it comes to the money, though, um, there's a couple of things that to think about. One of them is the accredited investor definition, which is essentially just the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, saying that you have to have a certain level of wealth or um, net worth in order to or income in order to make a private investment. And that's what these entrepreneurial companies are. So the biggest uh, explanation I can give there is you've got the public markets, just like if you wanted to go onto an E-Trade or something like that, or Fidelity and buy a share of Apple, that would be public. And then anything that is not a public company, um, some of these private companies that would all be through um, the entrepreneurial ecosystem or through an angel investing group, or in the most recent case, you can now do what's called crowdfunding. Uh, so you could go onto a platform like Republic or WeFunder and you, an entrepreneur could fundraise there. In those cases, you don't necessarily have to be accredited. Anybody can, um, can now, as of May of 2016, you can be a uh, an investor in an early stage company for as little as a hundred dollars. Wow, that's that's really cool that they've really kind of lowered the income bracket to actually start investing in companies because it, it obviously it, if you can help somebody out financially or other ways, it, it's pretty cool. And now the fact that it just opens up a whole other realm of people, right? Because not everybody has huge net worth to start investing. Um, so that's pretty cool that they did that. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting way. And in a lot of cases, it's not for every company. Um, there's different restrictions and rules and things you have to kind of read through. But for a lot of companies, especially if they have a consumer product, right. um, then it can be an, a really good marketing um, avenue as well. Sure. So I want to dive a little bit deeper than into what does the actual Angel Capital Association do to help angel investors? So we have a couple of things that we uh, spend most of our time on, education being one of the biggest. And we have what's called Angel University. And we have several classes that are very basic and for beginners. And then we have all the way up to advanced classes dealing with exits being a board member, risk, things like that. And these are classes that can be taken by angels. It can, they can also be taken by entrepreneurs. We, for the first time since COVID started, we had a very small gathering, very safe. Everybody was wearing masks, all the COVID protocols, but we were able to put together an in-person training class. Awesome. And half of the uh, room was angels and half of it were entrepreneurs. And it was really exciting because the entrepreneurs got to talk to the angels and kind of hear how they were thinking. And then the angels got to hear a little bit more about how entrepreneurs think about things. And it was a, a great blend. No, that that's awesome. So I'm curious then with, because the mindset obviously of an investor, an entrepreneur, 
can be almost a 180 sometimes and trying to bridge that gap sometimes is easy, sometimes is more challenging. How or what advice do you give to angels and then maybe entrepreneurs when they're looking to either give investment or get investment? So there's a lot of information out there. We'll start with entrepreneurs. Sure. There's a lot of information out there that entrepreneurs can find related to how to put a pitch deck together or how to try to talk to angels and your pitch. And in a lot of cases, angel groups or even pitch competitions, you might hear them being called, uh, they, they tend to allow for a certain period of time, right? So you might hear that it's like, oh, you, you get five minutes or seven minutes or 12 minutes or whatever it is. Um, so entrepreneurs have to, they, they have a lot of work to do because not only are they trying to put together how they can explain how their company is, how their company works, how, um, how they want to be able to grow the company and how successful it's going to be and really kind of appeal to the uh, angel investors out there in order to get funding. But they might have to do it in a very short period of time. So entrepreneurs have to get really good at not just figuring out, okay, what, if, what am I going to put in a pitch deck? They have to also figure out, well, what are the most important things to say and kind of put it in a priority order? So I'm, I'm usually telling entrepreneurs when I'm helping them through this process is, okay, there, you know, there's things out there and there's like a list. You can, you can find lists of the th most important things to put in a pitch deck. Things like you obviously have to put about what problem are you solving and are you actually solving a problem? Um, in some cases, you can find a company that's a great solution with no problem. So you can't be a solution without a problem, A, just let, let that be big. So you need a big problem that you're solving. That's what angels are really looking for. They want to see that you're solving something big. Then they want to know, how are you going to grow the company? And what does your product do? How are you going to make money? All those important things. But then also you want to talk about your team, who's on the team. If it's more than, um, if it's only one person, that's, that's problematic. And then uh, you also want to get into competition and, who you're selling to, how big is the market, you know, all those types of things. But even all of that, in my opinion, if I were an entrepreneur out there fundraising right now and they, somebody said to me, hey, what is the one thing that you think is super important that an entrepreneur should do? I would say it is to make a video. And I've talked about this a lot. And in some cases, people have done it on different platforms. But I think even if you're just going out to raise capital from angel groups, Make your own video where you explain and kind of walk through the deck because what will happen is here's here's how the conversations will start between entrepreneurs and angels. You'll hear an entrepreneur be like, hey, I want to, you know, raise money. The angels are like, OK, yeah, let me see your pitch deck. So you the entrepreneur sends the pitch deck to them on an email and then. The, or the angel will open it up and they'll read it and they'll think to themselves, well, okay, but I don't really get it because there's going to be something about it that would be so much better if the entrepreneur was actually there to explain. So I would say, hey, just make a video. It doesn't have to be, don't make it long, you know, like no more than like five minutes or so. But okay. like in five minutes, you could tell people quite a bit enough to get, the, you, you're not trying to tell them everything. You're only trying to get them interested enough to have a better conversation with you. But I'll even do it too. I'll, somebody will say, Hey, would you take a look at this company? I'm like, sure. Send me the pitch deck. 
You know, like I don't necessarily right. want to talk to the entrepreneur until I see what it is and, and see if it's something I'm even interested in or if it even fits my thesis. So I'm not going to go ahead and just schedule calls, you know, to do that. I would have no time in the day to be on the phone all the time with entrepreneurs. So I have to be able to look at it. Well, if, if there was like a five minute video I could watch that would explain it a lot, that would be like so much easier. Nowadays with everything's on video, I mean, even look at like Instagram, everything's videos and pictures and that's what people, that's how people are consuming content. So like kind of go to where the, go to where, meet people where they are, I guess is the best way to put it. No, I actually think that's really good advice, but I'm curious. So if I'm recording this three to five minute video or whatever, however roughly long it is, should I, should it just be the founder? Uh, if there's multiple founders, should there be kind of the, the C-suite for lack of a better term for it in that video? Or do you want to see one person or multiple people or does it not really matter? I, I don't really think it matters. I think you want to showcase your company. You are, you believe as the entrepreneur that you are the best person to do what you're doing. You have the best product and you have the best solution to the problem that you're solving. So showcase that however that is. And maybe in some cases, if it's like a tech company, you'd want to have your CTO say a couple words about how they're building the tech. Or if it's uh, some kind of a science company, you might want the chief science person to be able to say something. But I mean, for the most part, it's probably going to be the CEO, founder CEO. But you know, for the most part, I think it can be Oh, whatever makes your company shine. No, I think I think that's actually really good advice. So you've also been on the investment side for at a number of different investment companies. I'm curious to get your thoughts on maybe do you want to outline the type of investor that you should actually go to at the different stages? Because I think sometimes and you can correct me if I'm wrong, depending where you are in the country, the ranges and titles seem to be a little bit different. So do you maybe want to talk about when should you go to an angel? When should you go to a VC and, and any other types of investors that you recommend at, at different stages? Sure. So if you look across the country, it's very different. And I've actually had the um, the ability to see a lot of this because I've moved around a little bit with my husband's job over the last 10 years and lived in New York, Dallas, San Francisco, um, Pittsburgh, and now Charlotte, North Carolina. So I've kind of seen those bigger cities and also smaller cities that don't have quite the, uh, the Silicon Valley feel that Silicon Valley does. So um, when you look across the board, it kind of depends on where you are ge geographically located and what does that mean for your business? So in a lot of cases, just to find the angels or angel groups that are in your area, you can literally just go to Google and put an angel group in and then put your town or city or whatever. And then you can start to get kind of connected there. Um, so at the earliest stage, we call it the seed stage, like S E E D. That is when you're getting kind of friends and family, or you're getting kind of early angels. And in some cases, especially if you've got a specific type of product, like, and maybe let's just use an example, like some kind of a medical device product, you're going to want to go out and find people who are, who are just as passionate about it as you are. And that's usually where you can 
sometimes find some money. And they, they, the collective they, usually say, um, if you're looking for advice, go ask for money. And if you're looking for money, go ask for advice. And so I usually tell really early entrepreneurs who are like, look, I don't have any way to raise money from friends and family. I don't know what to do. Um, go out and start to talk to people before you need money so that you can start to build those relationships. Because I just invested uh, over the last two years in, in um, two different women who I met six years ago. And so I never invested in them before, but I built a relationship with them and I'd watch their companies grow. And then it got to a point where I invested after the fact. So, you know, there's a lot to do, uh, you know, from that standpoint and ways to like unpack your company so that people can really see what it is at these early stages, like seed stage. And then you get into like a series A. Um, that's now you're probably going to some bigger groups. Uh, bigger angel groups, and then maybe even small, we call them micro VCs, which are smaller um, venture capital groups. And and just, just to define, you know, an angel writes a check out of their own checkbook. A venture capitalist is managing other people's money. And in, and in a lot of cases, that means institutional money. And when we say institutional, we mean like pension funds or family offices or like bigger conglomerates. Um yeah. So then, so series A, you'd probably do the micro VCs. And then once you get into series B and, and above, you're probably into the whole, uh, um, you know, the bigger venture capital firms. No, I, I think that's actually really good advice. So I'm curious, should you be tailoring your pitch deck and, and maybe even video in, in your case, I think this is really good advice to the different type of investor. So for example, should it be a bit different for like a seed investment? Obviously you would update it to show different results and, and where the company is depending on the investment you're going to, but how similar or different should it be at the different stages or at, you know, a seed stage, for example, should you have different decks depending on who you're pitching to or where they are geographically located or what's your thoughts around that? Well, I always tell entrepreneurs to keep it short and simple. So you probably don't want to have more than maybe 10 or 12 slides in your deck, but then have an appendix. So, you know, have some slides that could answer some questions once you kind of go through the, you know, the initial outline of your company. And those uh, extra slides you can incorporate in or out as needed. But when it comes to the different stages and the different types of videos, I, I always go back to thinking about milestones. So if you're going to raise money and you're at the earliest stage, let's say you're at seed stage, well, you're going to raise money and you're saying, okay, I'm going to raise whatever it is. Let's say it's $500,000 and you're going to use that money for X, Y, and Z. Well, you really have to prove to investors that you've done what you want, what you set out to do with the 500,000 to do X, Y, and Z so that you can go on to raise more money. Because the first thing that's going to happen is you go to raise another round down the road and the investors then are going to say, well, wait a minute, you raise this other money here and you said you were going to have these accomplishments and you haven't done that. So now what? And that kind of um, makes the confidence level not be so high. So I would say to entrepreneurs, you just want to be really thoughtful and careful about 
how you're using the money. Like, okay, it doesn't mean because you just raise money, you get to go to a steak dinner or anything like that. You have to think about like, how are you going to use this money in order to hit the milestones that are going to show your company's growing so that then you can go for your next round. So I'm always telling entrepreneurs, think about the, have the end in mind and the end being like your exit. So at the end of the day, you're going to sit there and you're going to think to yourself, okay, what is, what do I want to build my company to and who's going to buy it? Or how am I going to get, um, you know, this company sold? And then you go back and think, okay, well, what would I have to do to do that? Well, I'd have to have like X number in revenue. Well, how many get that? Well, I'd have to do this. Then, I, and, and you kind of go all the way back to the beginning of how you get it started. And then you, that kind of helps you to lay out a roadmap. No, I think that's actually really good advice. I'm curious then to talk a little bit about how much equity should somebody, I, I get it's really can vary and it can be really challenging and it's kind of hard to give kind of broad advice for so many different industries, but you've done enough of this. Do you see like at the different stages, is there kind of a guideline of you should give up 10 to 20% or, you know, you should end up by the time you potentially sell your company with X percent. Is there kind of guidelines or your thoughts around that? Or, or what is your thoughts on equity? Well, so this is very, very important. And in fact, I've seen entrepreneurs get themselves into a pickle with this because what they'll do is they think, oh my gosh, I need some money. I've got to go out and get, you know, to a certain point. So they'll take in money and they won't, in, in a lot of cases, it's like on a convertible note and we could do a whole call. We could do a whole other episode on convertible notes, but they might do it in that particular way. And they don't realize the ramifications down the road of what that means. I had one entrepreneur who he had taken in so much money on, on, on convertible notes and he had different terms on each of the notes. And it put, let, let's just say the end result was he ended up giving away like 40% of his company, he had no idea that he had done it that way. Oh, wow. So it's, it's important that, you know, I know, you know, entrepreneurs, they don't have a lot of money, so they're not able to pay, you know, a lot of attorney fees, but attorneys can really be your friend. And there's a lot out there who specialize in helping entrepreneurial companies. I would never use, don't ever use like cousin Joe's sister's brother for your uh, legal when they don't have any experience working with entrepreneurial companies, super important, but, you know, just getting a little bit of guidance and there are some tools out there online that you can use that will help you again with the end in mind, you're like, Hey, this is where I want to be, but I, and I know I need to raise X amount of dollars. So let me parcel that out. And it'll, it'll let you kind of put into the formula this is how much I'm going to raise at the seed stage. This is how much I'm going to raise at series A. And then you can kind of play with it a little bit so that you can see that. I've seen entrepreneurs where they get to the point where they're going into, they've built the company now and they have really good company. And, but now guess what? The entrepreneur only owns like 15% of the company still or 10%. And that's not enough. That's not enough to keep them motivated and the investors aren't going to be very happy about that either because they want the entrepreneur to be motivated and to keep going. So it, it's a balancing act. It's it's definitely an art um, and a science. You kind of have to look at all of it, but looking at the big picture is so, so important. And I know it's really hard as an entrepreneur because you're just thinking, gosh, I just want to get my company off the ground. I just need some money you know, to be able to do that. But super important to 
just be watchful of that. No, I, I think that's actually really good advice. And it's so easy to not think about the long game, right? It's so, okay, like, what am I doing this quarter is, I think, sometimes where people think about, they don't think about, well, what about in a year or six months or three years or five years, right? Because sometimes you're holding on to companies for sometimes maybe a decade before it gets acquired or can go IPO. Like, you might be actually holding on for that long. The other thing that I want your thoughts on then is, so I get this equity kind of sorted out. I'm trying to raise money. What's your thoughts on actually going all in, maybe doing something part-time, validating an idea? Like, because I find sometimes you get such mixed results and what have you seen has worked really well. And it's probably, again, depending on the person and, and their situation. But do you believe that an entrepreneur should have to be all in or should they start small or a bit of both? Or it really depends on what they're doing uh, or trying to build. So I think it's important that an entrepreneur flushes out kind of their idea on their own before they start taking in funding. No investor is going to want to invest in a company that's kind of half there and half not. So I really think entrepreneurs need to be scrappy at the beginning and start to prove out their model. And then they can go to take on investors later. But the scrappier a an entrepreneurial company can be at the beginning and have people basically working for sweat equity as opposed to dollars, um, that will be able to prove out their model. And then they can go on to get investors. But I don't know of any investors who would want to invest in a company where the entrepreneur wasn't full-time. Got you. No, I think I think that's really good advice. And I think that makes a lot of sense is if you're working kind of evenings and weekends on an idea to validate it with maybe a couple friends or co-founders. And then once you're kind of serious about it and you raise some money, kind of, you know, take this on full time. Well, it's probably more than full time. I think most entrepreneurs work more than 40 hours a week. I'm, I'm guessing you'd agree with that. Yeah, that's for sure. Yes. <laughs> so because you've been on or in the space for so long, is there anything else that you see time and time again that you wish entrepreneurs wouldn't do that you would you'd maybe say like just to, for the listener out there what entrepreneurs shouldn't do yeah well i guess should or shouldn't do so you probably have advice on both yeah i guess like sending an email on linkedin or a message on linkedin to an investor and saying um hey i need fifty thousand dollars probably isn't going to get you anywhere if you don't know the person uh, so I'm back to, you know, start to build a relationship. And, you know, that usually means like asking for advice, not necessarily asking for money. Um, and then I always encourage entrepreneurs to meet with investors, talk to them, get to know people way before you really need them for some. It's just like anything in life. You know, the more trust and the more you build a relationship with someone, the more they're going to be excited about your business and what you're doing. And you really, as an entrepreneur, you need to be shouting from the rooftops how great your idea is and how great your company is and how great it is that you're all these things that you're building. And then you will get people who will follow and, that, and they'll help you. Interesting. I, I think that's actually really good advice. 
So for people that maybe don't know investors or are looking to connect with new ones, what is, is there a good thing to kind of maybe outline or ask in some of those cold emails or, or cold calls that would actually resonate and not just be like, this is just another spam kind of email or, you know, spam call. So I think it's important that entrepreneurial companies have um, a, an advisory board. And that would be kind of the people who are in the industry, people that you need in order to help your business grow. So if you're going to send out messages kind of cold to people, ask them for what it is that you really need. And not necessarily money, but like, okay, I really need somebody who is a specialist in supply chain. So, or whatever it is that your company needs to grow, because if I got an, an email like that or a message like that, I might be more inclined to help that person say, hey, I can direct you or I can put you in the, in the right direction, as opposed to like, hey, you know, just give me this because I need it now. Interesting. So almost like come at them with a specific ask, like a question along the lines, like, look, I'm new to this. I'm looking for resources or help coming up with this in my supply chain, whatever your issue is. And that right. person is more likely to say, you know what, like go here. I can connect you with this person. Or maybe that person say, you know what, like let's hop on the phone for 10, 15 minutes and talk through your issue. Right. And then eventually they might put in money or help you or become an advisor or mentor. Like you never know where these conversations will go, right? Exactly. Yeah, I think that's actually really good advice because I'm well. We all get the just blanket LinkedIn email messages, and so if you ask for something, sometimes you'll hear back, sometimes you won't hear back. But I think majority of people, if you don't ask for too much and you're nice about it, will actually reply to you. That's right. And use your own network to try to get to other people, you know, um, ask people to introduce you to other people instead of just saying, hey, I need money. Tell them, hey, I need to, you know, I need help getting in touch with this or that. And then use your own network to try to do that, too. Don't just use cold outreach. Right. Well, and then I also think, too, it shows that you're a hustler, right? And you're willing to put in the, and like kind of grind, exactly. right? Like it's not always yeah. fun. Like sometimes I always joke that being an entrepreneur is the best and worst thing I've ever done at the exact same time. And I'll give you one of those answers depending on the 15 minute interval I'm in. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes. You know, it's hard. It's really, 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 really hard work. And, you know, we appreciate that as angels that entrepreneurs are, they're working really hard. So I'm curious. So you've been on the investment side roughly when is an investor hoping to potentially get their money back is it three years five years are you always hoping to maybe ipo or, or sell but what's the time range and what is an investor actually looking to get out of their investment usually well just like the public markets you cannot time this stuff <laughs> and if an angel is thinking that they're going to have a specific time frame in order to get money back, that is not the way to think about it. We're not doing angel investing, although we are in it to get a return. If that was the only reason we were doing it, it's probably not the best asset class to be in because it is risky, very risky. Um, however, there's a lot of 
other things that make angel investing so interesting. All the things I mentioned about the different types of technology you get to see, the different types of people you get to meet, um, but you're also helping to create change. I mean, I want to invest in companies where I want to see change in the world. I want to see women's health get more attention and get more money and um, you know better services. And so I'm going to invest in companies that are working on things specifically related to women's health, for example. So all of these types of things are what angels do besides just wanting to get a return. Now, after like 10 years, it does get a little, they call it patient capital for a reason because you have to be pretty patient. Um, but, you know, it was really like eight years. I've been doing this for about 10 years now and it was I was eight years in before I started to see any type of returns come in. And even th with that, it hasn't been like a windfall. So um, it takes time, it takes time. No, I, I think that's really good advice. So you mentioned um, you like to invest in, in women's health. How is the investment landscape for, you know, basically non-white males like myself? Like, is there things, have you, is it getting better? What are your thoughts around it? And then maybe mention what actual people can do to help, whether it's financial or otherwise. So two reports that I would um, send listeners to, and you can put the um, tags in the show notes, but Literally. on the Angel Capital Association's website, which is just angelcapitalassociation.org, we have our angel funders report. Um, it just came out uh, a couple weeks ago, and you'll see there that there has been significant improvements in getting funding to women and people of color as far as um, funding of entrepreneurial companies over the last um, couple of years. So that would be some place that you can go and look at some of the statistics that are out there. Um, when it comes specifically to women's health, there's a website called femtechfocus.org. And um, my buddy, uh, Dr. Brittany Barreto, is the founder of that. And she is uh, talks really about everything femtech. And she has a podcast and there's lots of information, but she does have a report that she puts out that shows what's happening and the changes that are going on in how we can affect women's health. So lots of things out there and it's becoming more and more uh, well-known, all of the stuff that's going on. So it isn't uh, like it hasn't been happening. It has been getting better, but we need to be talking about it more to make sure that people realize how much it is improving and how much people can do in order to help out. No, I, I think that's, those are really good resources. So you also host a podcast. Do you want to talk about what's the podcast called and what do you talk about in the podcast? Sure. Um, the podcast is called the angel next door. And it's basically, we talk about anything angel investing and we try to demystify what angel investing is. So the first couple of episodes, we talked a lot about just what does it mean to be an angel and what is this asset class and what do you mean in accredited investor definition, kind of some of the very basic things. And then we've had some episodes where we talk specifically to different founders or different people that have become angel investors and how they journeyed there. So out on the podcast, in the podcast world, you can um, 
you can listen to all kinds of things about how companies were built or how people raised money or how they pitched things, but you don't really hear a lot about how did people become an angel? Totally. And so that's kind of what the angel next door is all about. Perfect. That's, that's really great. But we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, the angel capital association, the podcast, and any other links you want to mention? Sure. So um, as I said, the Angel Capital Association website, you can go there and there's a link on there for the Angel Next Door podcast. You can also go on to any place that you normally get podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, and you can find the Angel Next Door. Um, and then to find me, you can just find me on LinkedIn, Marsha Dawood. Perfect, Marsha. Well, I really appreciate you again taking the time out of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.